Hello everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Middle East Weekly Podcast, brought to you by the Journal of Middle Eastern Politics and Policy. On today's episode, we'll first be discussing New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman's recent controversial column, Saudi Arabia's Arab Spring at Last. Next, we'll discuss the attack on the El Raudo Mosque in the Sinai Peninsula that occurred on November 24th and killed more than 300 worshippers. We'll discuss what make this, makes this attack particularly tragic and why Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi's inadequate counterterrorism strategies in the Sinai failed to prevent this attack. We'll be talking with Andrew Mekendar, Anna Boots, Mariam Renem, Nick Norberg, and myself, Blair Big. So the first thing that we wanted to talk about on this week's episode is the Thomas Friedman column in the New York Times that he published at the end of last week, and he titled it Saudi Arabia's Arab Spring at Last. And basically the gist of the editorial is that Thomas Friedman went to Saudi Arabia to interview Prince Mohammed bin Salman. And the first thought that crossed my mind after reading this op-ed was, did Prince Mohammed bin Salman store Thomas Friedman in the same room as Saad Hariri <laughs> and force him to write this very congratulatory and flattering article because it was so forced and so um, awkward to read. And the whole thing was basically just praising all of MBS's reforms and calling him the initiator of Saudi's Arab Spring. And I found it problematic both just because of the very congratulatory tone it took towards MBS's reforms, which have largely been somewhat almost authoritarian in tone, but also the denigration towards the Arab Spring reformers in other Arab Spring countries. There was a line in the article that said, Unlike the other Arab Springs, all of which emerged bottom-up and failed miserably, except in Tunisia, this one is led from the top down by the country's 32-year-old Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, and if it succeeds, it will not only change the character of Saudi Arabia, but the tone and tenor of Islam across the globe. So I, I found this just very offhandedly writing off all of the protests that took place and all of the activists that were involved in the Arab Spring protests in 2011, throughout the Arab world, and even if many of them weren't a typical success. It just kind of writes off a lot of the efforts for democratic reform that have happened in these countries and just takes a very congratulatory tone towards MBS. But the whole thing was, I just thought, very uncritical of a lot of these reforms. And I'm curious to know what you guys thought as well about the article and whether I was the only one that had this impression. I had the same reaction. I think that especially that denigration of the outcomes of other Arab Springs shows for someone who's made a life reporting on the Middle East shows a really profound misunderstanding of why other revolutions might not have resulted in a strong democracy. And it's because of, you know, some some other really strong forces in the region and not that a top-down approach is going to be better and going to be more successful. And what did you think, Nick? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that this article kind of plays into viewing the view that is starting to emerge of Mohammed bin Salman as the quote-unquote CEO of Saudi Arabia, which I personally find to be a problematic way of viewing things. I mean, I, I do think it's maybe a little uh, unreasonable to expect that Saudi Arabia is just going to wake up tomorrow as a representative democracy, but that doesn't necessarily mean that Mohammed bin Salman is, you know, uh, is necessarily liberalizing Saudi Arabia. He may be reorganizing Saudi Arabia. He may be remaking Saudi Arabia in his image. I think the jury is still out on both of those things. But I think it's a bit of a stretch to say that he's, you know, bringing the Arab Spring to Saudi Arabia. I mean, it seems like something that's categorically different. He's definitely doing something. I just don't think that it's this. The other thing that kind of bothered me about the article was 
It talked it talked specifically about Mohammed bin Salman's plans to bring a more moderate Islam to Saudi, but there was a line too about how these efforts were going to change Islam across the globe. Just kind of placing that power for determining what the rhetoric about Islam is going to be in MBS's hands also felt very like just feeding into the narrative that Saudi would want as being kind of the controller of the Sunni world. Especially for a world where the majority of Muslims live outside of the Middle East. I think yeah. like most people who think critically about global Islam have long let go of the notion that like Saudi Arabia somehow controls the narrative of, of global Islam and that showed a misunderstanding of where other Muslims derive inspiration for their own religion, and it's probably not for many of them coming from Mohammed bin Salman. It's also worth pointing out that the the monarchy in Saudi Arabia doesn't, even though it's even though the king is styled as the protector of the holy places, technically the monarch doesn't have any religious function or any role in you know, in in the religion at all, and the religious establishment in Saudi Arabia is actually oftentimes a competitor with the with the with the monarchy and that the king oftentimes has to work together with and compromise with the religious establishment not direct it i was actually kind of confused i thought that this was analysis of this point was missing from the article because what i've understood about saudi arabia is just this that there's this like tension between the religious establishment and the monarchy and he had a few lines in there just about how the religious establishment was just giving in to all of Mohammed bin salman's desires and i didn't un- understand you know, what, he didn't develop the other side of this very well. Does anyone know why that might be or what the status of that tension is in Saudi? And Yeah, I mean, the, the Mohammed bin Salman is kind of seen as attempting or at least exploring, you know, whether or not he'll be able to bring the uh, religious establishment under the control of the palace uh, a little bit more closely. He did uh, eliminate the religious police which was seen as a as basically a, a way the religious establishment had of projecting power within the country. Without the religious police, they their their concrete power is you know, reduced in that sense. And you know the the exploratory decree on lifting the ban uh, on women drivers was also sort of a uh, is sort of seen as an overture to to see how willing the religious establishment is to fall in line with the monarchy. It's it should be noted that it's the decree didn't eliminate ban entirely. It said that there, it appointed a commission to study the issue on behalf of the royal house, and they would make a recommendation to the king. To the king. So this, this committee is kind of studying how receptive the religious establishment will be to falling in line here. Um, it does appear that Mohammed bin Salman is trying as, as hard as he can to deny the religious establishment any other alternative, but it's also in line with the way that he's brought the military under his own power through becoming the defense minister and retaining that role, even though he's become the deputy crown prince. Traditionally, a new defense minister would be appointed, but that has not happened. So what he's really doing is trying to centralize all branches. I'm hesitant to use the term branches of government, but all centers of power (laughs) underneath his own, you know, authority. What did you guys think, Miriam and Andrew? Did you have any other reactions about the article? I just thought that he didn't really carefully evaluate the reforms that Mohammed bin Salman was carrying out. I think he just kind of glossed over it and was like, oh, these reforms are great, but he didn't really talk about the implications of the reforms, and he didn't talk about how these reforms are supposed to bring out this uh, Arab Spring that Mm -hmm. he was talking about. So I don't think that it was, um, I don't think it gave a fair picture of what is going on in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. I think that Thomas Friedman very easily bought this contention by MBS that these reforms were very much directed at the opening of Saudi Arabia, you know, driving it forward to a new progressive future, didn't really dive into the possibility, or in fact the probability, that you know, this was the, these recent moves, particularly in terms of locking up, um, well, locking up in, in rather palatial surroundings, a whole lot of the um, <laughs> princes of the kingdom, um, that that was really about you know, securing power. That was a, that was a power play rather than a, um, an anti-corruption drive. And the fact that Friedman didn't really challenge that, I thought was you know, quite a, a weakness of his, of his article. Yeah, and even also just the way he interviewed people for this article, he mentioned a couple of Saudis that he had interviewed and said that all of all of the ones he'd talked to were kind of wildly supportive of MBS's reforms. And I was a little bit skeptical about that, that everyone he talked to felt that way. So whether he was selectively um, picking some of these quotes for the article or just not interrogating why they would have given him those positive answers, maybe because they thought that was an answer the American, an American yeah. would want to hear, mm-hmm. or because of censorship, or a fear of retaliation for speaking out negatively against these reforms. Yeah, I was going to say, maybe, maybe they can't say yeah. <laughs> whether or not they support the, you know, it doesn't seem like they have much choice, you know, in, in if you're going to come out strongly against Muhammad. Uh, I, let me rephrase, I will say that, you know, now doesn't seem the time to come out strongly against Muhammad right. bin Salman. He does not seem like a guy that you want to cross, right. at this moment, at least. Um, yeah, and as academics sitting in this room, I think we we would think about drawing conclusions like these based on a, a wide representative sample of different Saudis from different, you know, different backgrounds, genders, class backgrounds, etc. And so it's frustrating to read really big sweeping conclusions drawn from several of Thomas Friedman's friends and contacts who he asked what they thought about yeah. MBS for this article. <laughs> yeah, but it's just, it's interesting to kind of see the somewhat uncritical view that's being presented of all of these Saudi reforms in the U.S. media um, and something that I think we want to challenge a little bit with this podcast and hope that other academics out there who are following this issue or just people who are well-informed kind of take a slightly more critical eye to this whole reform of Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Okay, so I think the second story that we wanted to move to this week was the attack of the Sufi mosque in Egypt. And Miriam's going to tell us a little bit more about what happened there. So this past Friday, a mosque was attacked, a Sufi, like you said, Sufi-affiliated mosque was attacked during, during the Friday prayers. And the public prosecutor, the Egyptian public prosecutor, has said that there are about 305 people have died and 128 people were injured in the attacks. It is considered the deadliest attack in Egyptian modern history. The militants basically detonated explosives at the entrance of the mosque, and when people were trying to leave, there were gunmen that shot at them, which just, you know, increased the the death toll. And the reaction of the military troops was to they basically closed the international Arish and Bir al-Arab highway, and they also conducted two drone strikes in areas where militant groups were, were camped out. And so far, no group has claimed responsibility, even though um, most people think that it's the ISIS affiliate in, um, in the northern Sinai that carried out this attack. So these attacks were part of the 
larger counterinsurgency that's going on in northern Sinai between the Egyptian military and the ISIS affiliates in the region. And it just goes to show that the strategy that the president is taking is not working. And he has not made any strides in correcting the strategy where, and he's just antagonizing more of the population by engaging in extrajudicial killings or executions of um, unarmed citizens, unarmed militants, and of also the forced imprisonment and campaign of torture that he's carrying out has proven to be completely ineffective in reducing these attacks because this isn't the first attack that's taken place. And the significance of this attack has been because it is a mosque, a lot of people are surprised. However, many of the extremist groups, especially um, Daesh or ISIS, consider um, the Sufi Sufism, which is a mystical branch of Islam, to be heretical. So the attack is not as surprising in that context. But it is definitely very tragic, and Sisi has, he did um, make a statement, and he ordered there to be comp compensations to the families that were affected. And he's also, in his statement, he made sure to, you know, place himself as this, like, regional uh, fighter of terrorism and extremism, and he's trying to, you know, uh, bring about this reform into Islam, but this attack is just evidence that that is not working. Uh, so, Maria, could you give us a little bit more context on this wider-ranging counterinsurgency campaign in northern Egypt? This is, uh, from what I understand, this is a, a fight that's been going on for quite some time, and one that has cost the Egyptian government fairly heavily. Are they are they trying to evict ISIS fighters, Daesh fighters specifically, or are there a range of groups that they're trying to eliminate here? There are a range of groups that are operating in northern Sinai, um, and there have been various attacks over the years, especially after the military coup started. The, the region started becoming destabilized after the um, like following the Arab Spring in 2011, but after the military coup, that's when the attacks started and increased in 2013. They detonated an explosive device that targeted a, sh a Sufi shrine. They also, in, in 2016, militants were responsible for kidnapping two prominent Sufi sheikhs and um, decapitating them. So it has been an ongoing struggle, and there are various groups that have recently pledged allegiance to ISIS, and they're working to destabilize the region. And it kind of has to. It has to do with the fact that in si in the northern Sinai, the people, the Bedouins that live there rarely have access to basic necessities to survive, such as electricity. So they do engage in a lot of like smuggling, and, and that kind of has destabilized the area. But they've been strengthened by the military's lack of being able to like fight back on the ground when in Egypt as well as in Sina. Uh, would, you, would you say that Sufis are the main target of uh, the violence that's going on, or do these groups also attack government forces as well? No, they, they so they were, initially they started just attacking the military and police forces because they were trying to send a direct message to um, the government, but then now they've uh, started to, the Sufis specifically, in living in that area. So there's been a lot of um, focus, I think, in Western media to this distinction between Sufi Islam and mainstream Islam and maybe some misunderstanding along the way. But for our listeners who might not quite understand the difference between Sufi Islam and mainstream Islam, how would you describe that? So Sufism is, it's hard to call it a different sect because it isn't, because Sufis consider themselves either Sunni or Shia. It's just more focused on the mystical aspect of the religion, and it's more introspective. 
But unfortunately, extremist groups would identify that as going outside of the religion and um, pretending to have a, a deeper connection to God than is accepted by their interpretation of the religion. So there is, there is a lot of pushback against Sufism for that, even though Sufis themselves wouldn't necessarily consider themselves Sufi. They would consider themselves Sunni or Shia. Mm -hmm. Here in the West, we often characterize Sufism as kind of the peaceful version of Islam, which is a major mischaracterization in the sense that that places all other Muslims into the category of being non-peaceful. And I think also, in uh, you know, since this attack, the Western media in particular has um, talked, you know, fairly significantly about Sufis, the, the the Sufi identity of um, these worshippers being the the reason for their being killed. And it's interesting because it looks like the Egyptian media has more focused on other sort of political factors um, as to why these militants may have attacked this particular congregation of worshippers. So yes, and you know they, they were Sufis, and um, ISIS clearly considers Sufis to be heretics and so on, and, and it has been very vocal about that. But also, the local tribe in the area where the massacre happened had recently started cooperating with the Egyptian security forces in their operations against militants. It seems that the militants had actually gone amongst these villages several times to sort of essentially warn them off doing this to to try and scare them away from cooperating with government forces. And so it's possible that this was kind of a uh, sort of a payback or, or a revenge attack for cooperating with government forces. So I think there's also that element of it um, alongside the religiously motivated side as well. And I think one of their main purposes in carrying out these attacks generally in that area is to show that not just that not that they're specifically dominating the northern northern Sinai, but the fact that the security forces are incapable of protecting the citizens of that that area. They're they're incapable of exerting any power in that area. And that, that's one of the things that they seek to do because that because they did start off by attacking only like military or security officials. And now that they're just branching out, they're just showing that you can't stabilize this area or we, we have more power, which is so Ray, if I could just ask a follow-up question to that, why would you say it's, it is that the Egyptian government, ha, that the Egyptian security forces have such difficulty in uh, exercising control in this province? Is it because there aren't enough of them? Is it because of the way that they're going about these operations? Uh, or is it just because a lot of these uh, areas are fairly remote? I think that... I mean, I think it's a mix of a lot of things, but I think the main thing is that the way that the government is going about this is all wrong. They're um, choosing just brutal force, and I think over, we've reached that conclusion where you are not going to eliminate extremism by dropping bombs in a place. You're not go that's not going to work. You need more than that. There needs to be a more comprehensive plan that eliminates this type of idea that's prevalent in that area, and that's only going to be achieved once the government focuses on economic development or um, political development in terms of expanding political freedoms and making it okay for people to exercise their basic human rights. Whereas the government has just used this instability in that area to crack down on dissidents in Egypt and Cairo and, and in the surrounding areas, which is just proving to be a complete failure. And we've seen that the US president is super supportive of Sisi and his methods, but there, I think the administration here should reevaluate that because it's not going to stop these attacks. It's just going to give them more fuel because they're going about this whole thing completely wrong.
And as well as the, yeah, the, perhaps the misdirection of the strategic approach, I think the Egyptian military has not tactically been approaching this very well by the sound of things. Um, it has invested heavily in kind of the big flashy armaments that you know, look good in parades, like helicopters and tanks and so on. But the weaponry it's got is not actually all that effective in the really mountainous terrain of the Sinai. And what, I mean, what it needs is better investment in intelligence to understand where exactly the militants are, where they are, where they are operating. Because that's, by the sound of things, is, is what is really lacking. Um, yet most of, the mil- most of the military budget is going to this big ticket military hardware, which has also been concentrated in bases along the Nile, not even in, in the Sinai region. So there's clearly been a kind of misallocation of military resources as well, which presumably will have to change if the, if the military wants to get serious about taking, taking on these militants. And that's a common thing within the Egyptian government is like investing money in these large projects, but not actually producing any substantial improvements in, in whatever they're doing, and in be it economics or military operations. This was a really tragic event, so hopefully this will kind of mark a turning point in the way that CC approaches the Sinai and avoid some of these future these attacks in the future.